Hello, and welcome to the RA Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the producer of the show. Today, we have an interview with the writer Emma Warren, the author of the new social history of dancing called Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Floor. Emma has been documenting grassroots music culture since she and her friends started Jockey Slut magazine in the mid-90s. She worked on staff at The Face and then spent six years as an editorial mentor on Brixton's youth-run Live magazine. She published Make Some Space, Tuning into Total Refreshment Center in 2019 on her Sweet Machine imprint, which tells the story of a former warehouse in Hackney that became home to a reggae, dub, and dancehall collective that turned the space into a Caribbean community center. She quickly followed this with her 2020 book, Document Your Culture, a Manual, a guide to preserving grassroots venues and creative spaces. She is also the author of Steam Down, or How Things Begin, on Rough Trade Books, a celebration of an influential weekly jam in Southeast London, and a rich telling of the ways in which culture is created. All of her writing is notably about physical spaces and how music thrives only through our in-person connections with each other. In this episode, she speaks with Aaron Goncher, a journalist and the former editor-in-chief of the now-defunct Red Bull Music Academy. He now also works closely with the Glaswegian record label and creative collective Numbers. Their conversation is a fascinating and far-ranging one. They speak about writing from the heart, grappling with Warren's space within the history of dance music, both as a citizen and a contributor, and her deeply rooted experiences with nightlife communities. She also talks about the generative ways in which London music culture has evolved, and her early days documenting super clubs like Heaven, which were critical in shaping the fabric of contemporary UK club culture. But this is the way in which the dance floor is a portal and a, a, like a transmission tool as well as being this technology of togetherness because you can be in places that are very far apart in a very pre-internet world and there's something about the action of moving together um, which is so powerful that the um, reverberations of that will really travel and they travel in a very particular way. The book is full of sensitive and sensible authoritative experience that answers questions about why we dance together and what dancing tells us about ourselves, individually and collectively. According to Warren, dancing doesn't just refract the music and culture within which it evolves. It also generates new music and culture. When we speak only of the music, we lose part of the story. The part that finds us dancing as children on the toes of adults, the part that triggers communication across borders and languages, the part that finds us worried that we'll never be able to dance again, and the part that finds us wondering why we were ever nervous in the first place. I hope you enjoyed this special insight into this great piece of writing and socio-cultural history. So without further ado, here's Emma Warren. Thanks for tuning in. I wanted to start with a Theo Parrish quote that kicks off Dance Your Way Home. It's taken from a Facebook post that he made in 2016. And in the statement, he says in part, escapism has always been an adjective used to describe the dance. That's an outsider's view. Solidarity is what it really offers. What can you tell me about your first encounter with that quote and the inspiration that you took for it for Dance Your Way Home? I saw it when he posted it in 2016 and it hit me strong and it hit me hard and it hit me direct and I understood what he was saying. He was saying as far as I interpreted it 
that those of us who benefit from dance music without paying the cost of racism and all the costs that racism bring need to be aware of that and need to respond in that context. Um, I was always, you know, a fan of Theo's work, but I'm also a fan of the clarity that he brought to that discussion. It was really important. And at the time, um, I, I look back at the post recently and it's full of people saying, oh, well, you know, like other things are important and I'm not racist and all this kind of whataboutery. Um, but I really heard the signal and I tried to respond because it articulated things that I, I knew on a deeper level but hadn't, wasn't fully working with as a framework. So I was very grateful for that. And um, the longer quote also has some very useful material in it, which is, has kind of worked as a, a lighthouse or a, a guide or a, a map of some kind. Can you tell us more about what that quote includes? <laughs> There's a bit, um, so in it, he's talking basically to predominantly white DJs and producers who are dealing with music made by communities that experience racism. Um, and he describes it as being an art form that is rooted in a reaction to racism birthed from struggle and that it's not a plaything. Um, and, and there's a line in it later where he says something like, um, the best tribute you can have is setting yourself loose in unity with the exploited. And that's really a, a theme I came back to repeatedly in the book. Um, I found an American theorist who wrote a book called Sorry I Don't Dance about why men don't dance, why certain men don't dance. Um, I had lots of conversations with people about what it's like to be on a culturally powerful dance floor when you've got someone often a kind of like highly educated white man kind of instead of feeding the music talking in your ear about what the music is doing describing the drop rather than or intellectualizing the drop rather than moving to it and so this idea about um, setting yourself loose in unity with the exploited really is a pretty much what the whole book is about and if that quote came out originally in 2016 you were also working on other publications between 2016 and the publication of dance your way home was the theo parish quote a through line for all of those or did it feel like it was kind of thrumming in the background and really came to the fore with dance your way home yes because i think of those books as all part of the same tetralogy compound work whatever you want to call it Absolutely. I mean, I, I see that. I, I see them as being of each other. But also, that's because they are of me. And I don't write about things that I just have a kind of like abstract interest in. I write about things which I hold dear to me, which I am part of, which I'm glad to be part of. And so I operate from within, um, from within as opposed to from without. It's not like I'm suddenly going to go, oh, I'm really interested in like, I don't know what, let me think of something I have no connection to. Polish, I don't know, a particular aspect of historic Polish dancing that I don't have any connection to. I'm unlikely to be making books or work about that. I dig where I stand to quote the Swedish um, academic Sven Lindqvist, who's been another little kindred spirit across time and space. So with Make Some Space and Document Your Culture, there's something about connection and solidarity and being of, which absolutely connects to to what Theo so brilliantly communicated. But I think it was probably more explicit in the pamphlet I made about Steamdown, 
uh, which was for rough trade books, in which I was very aware of the ways that I needed to navigate my whiteness in a space that was um, predominantly populated, made by, evolved by people who experience racism firsthand um, and for whom the state is not particularly friendly or very friendly or friendly. And so um, the way in which Theo Parrish's quote um, affects my work is also to do with the way that I am navigating whiteness and the different ways I do that or the degree to which I need to do that with different pieces that I make. And with the steam down thing, it was very important. I was attempting to the best of my ability to be navigating my whiteness. And I feel like um, when Theo said later in his post, you'd better listen with your body, you'd better play from your heart, that I took that as an instruction as well. And I'm attempting to listen with my body and I'm attempting to write from my heart in the best, in the best way I possibly can. You referenced in that last question, or in the answer to your last question, um, you grappling with your space within these histories and your experiences in them as uh, a participant and uh, a consumer. Um, and I think it's clear through Dance Your Way Home that um, you have very deeply rooted experiences with these communities and with this music that might not necessarily be familiar at first glance to people who are only encountering your work through Dance Your Way Home. I was hoping that you could share a little bit about your path originally into these scenes and into this music that has proven to be so inspiring for your work over the last 20 years. I mean, first of all, I definitely never see myself as a consumer. I always see myself as a citizen. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, that difference is really, really important because I'm attempting always, you know, I'm, I'm in places because I love music. I love the heaviness of feeling music. I love being on a culturally powerful dance floor where everybody else there is there because they love the music. When the music is being delivered by a specialist who just has the best bits, um, that's what I want. And that's I think what it needs. contributor is probably a better word for me to use than consumer, right? Yes, yes yeah. Contributor and citizen. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not, I, I, I think it's probably fair to say, I mean, I mean, gosh, like the word extractive is like, is on the tip of my tongue because I have benefited personally and professionally from music made by people who experience racism without experiencing that firsthand myself, you know, keep, I keep on using this phrase, but I feel like it's a more useful framework for me. Obviously we can talk about blackness, we can talk about brownness, we can talk about class. Um, but certainly the state broadly is friendly to me. If I walk down the street, people broadly are not making negative assumptions about me. If I walk into a shop, people are not generally assuming that I'm there to nick something. If I have a breakdown, people don't generally assume that I'm going to be violent. So the state broadly looks upon me in a way that it doesn't for many of the people who are part of generated uh, the cultures of which I'm so lucky to have been part of. And, and that goes back to house music in the late 80s. That goes back to house and techno in Manchester in the 90s. Um, that goes through dubstep and grime in London in the 2010s. And even to now, you know, like I feel, and also this is also how privilege works, isn't it? I feel like I can. But um, uh, that's a quote from Travis Alabanza, by the way, who made a play recently called Sounds of the Underground. And uh, I kind of, I, I'm taking that from there. But, you know, I feel like I can still find a little spot at the back of an Afro house night in Brixton and appreciate the incredible new music that is being generated. So, yes, if that's what you're asking, I have 
um, found myself, found access to, been part of some very, very powerful Londonized music cultures, music cultures over the years. I want to actually, if you don't mind, just to stick on this moment a tiny bit longer, because there's two other things, conversations that come to my mind recently. Um, one was when I was in um, Leuven recently in Belgium with the guys from Horst. Um, they were running a lab which was about developing a new club in the city of Leuven and what club did the community want and need. It was a brilliant thing to be part of. Anyway, I met a booker, DJ booker called Gamdi Schmidt there. Um, and he had a really interesting conversation with me about London and London as the diaspora capital of the world. And he said something like, you know, like white people like you. And then he mentioned some other people who I was, you know, happy to be named next to. But, you know, people who've also benefited personally and professionally from music of black origin. And um, he said, yeah, people like you, you know, you're just like socialized in a dance and, you know, you get it. And of course, you have a high level of understanding, but you're never going to understand. And I thought that was a useful framework for me. And that also reminded me of a conversation I had many, many years ago. Uh, with Cindy Hansen Aless, who does uh, all sorts of brilliant um, club nights and public intellectual work and thinking and doing around music. And I was chatting to her in Brixton Market and she was talking about someone else in the market and she said, oh yeah, that that one. Yeah, yeah, she's like, um, she's like you. She's like one of those white women who are right because they've come through the rave or they've come through the club or they've come through the dance. And in a way, that's like a self-aggrandizing story because I'm saying someone thinks I'm all right. But it also struck me that many of the reasons why I am, am able to do the things I do in the way that I do them is because I've been socialized on the dance floor and I received the signals on the dance floor about how to operate and what matters. And some of that is about how you move on the dance floor, but some, some of that is also about the kind of things that Theo Parrish was talking about, you know, listening with your body, playing from your heart and setting yourself loose in unity. So that theme is definitely a long theme from me. And uh, I've, I've received some good input from people along the way. I'm grateful for it. I think as well, I remember a quote from Dance Your Way Home where you mentioned that you recognize the limits of your own perspective within that experience. And I was just curious how that translated into the concrete reckoning with the responsibilities that come with telling these stories, which you are... Um, a witness to a participant, uh, a participant in, but um, are perhaps not your own. And um, the, you know the the challenges and uh, limits of challenges, limits and opportunities that come through the process of bridging that gap when it comes to how you write, who you speak to, and what you speak about. I, mean, I think it's important not to like. Um, it's important to recognize limits, but also to, for me to recognize that I needed those dance floors that I've been on. I've needed them in different ways and I've needed them for different reasons, but I'm there because I needed it too. And so there are masses of connection points between all of us that are on those dance floors if you need them. And you might need them for reasons of life experience. You might need them for reasons of state violence. You might need them for reasons of family or the, all sorts of different reasons. But the need that connects us is one of the ways that I... Um, one of the ways that I navigate my way through this, I think. On a practical level, with all my work, I try to be massively transparent all the time. So everybody who's in the book um, had sight of what I'd written about them before it went in. And, and that meant there was an opportunity for me to correct any mistakes, which always appear. And also, like if I'd mangled something or if I'd missed some important nuance, 
or if there was something I hadn't said or I'd gone too far in or not far enough in, there was an opportunity for conversation. And um, and I did that a lot with a number of people, quite a lot of people actually, particularly people whose dance floor era predated mine. So I didn't have the the lived experience of even being on the dance floors that, that they were talking about. I'm thinking particularly about Fitzroy Facey, who runs a brilliant publication called Soul Survivors magazine. You know, he's been on London dance floors for decades and was very influential in the kind of era of like pre-acid house era of London jazz dancers, soul, funk, boogie, that kind of era, and um, uh, particularly a club called Spats. And so he was generous enough to engage with me in a kind of process of fact-checking and correcting and, and allowing me to be able to communicate his precious life material in the best possible way. Because this is also, in a, in a more broad way, all of this material in Dance Your Way Home is precious because what we do on the dance floor, the way that we release parts of our life struggles, the way we, to quote the DJ Frankie Valentine, dance our story, it's massively, it's raw and it's real and it's personal. And it's not for anyone to come in and capture it and just like take it off somewhere and do something with it without permission. It's a matter of consent, basically. I don't think it even can be captured in the traditional sense of archiving. Um, it's more about the communication and the listening to these stories rather than setting them into stone. I think the book is really excellent at recognizing the limits of the perspective that comes with who you speak to and what you speak about, and that the story is not over just because you've written the book. I mean, I really, my best hope for my book, apart from, you know, people feeling it, which appears to be how people are responding, they're feeling the intention which I set in it, which was to feel something, is that it acts as instigation for more exploration of this subject. You know, we don't generally consider the dance floor, the dancers, the ordinary dancers to be massively valuable or to be cultural. Um, but I'm saying it really is. And I've just st started a part of this conversation in a way that I feel is going to, yeah, bear lots of dance floor fruit. And I, I feel good about that. One of the ways that I've described the book to people is that it's not so much about dance floors, but by dance floors, about the experiences that these dance floors instigated and created. Um, and they are the ones and the people on them are the ones responsible for shaping the stories. It's not just a rote delivery of the who, what, when, where, how of certain times and places. But going back to what you said about um, the dance floor as a a place where people go when they are in need. What was that need for you during your, your first exposure to dance floors? And I don't mean clubs, I just mean dancing and dance floors. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is where it kind of gets a bit personal. And, you know, I knew that I had to put a, some of myself in it. I needed to place myself on the dance floor. And that, you know, there's plenty of people that have written brilliant books about all kinds of dance floors, about DJs, about producers, about promoters. But I knew this wasn't going to be like that. Um, so I suppose my need related to something I didn't have any language for at the time, which was being a young carer. Uh, myself and my siblings had to be involved in the care of one of my parents who was increasingly disabled with all the kind of complications that come with having a disabled parent when one of the adults in your life is going through something really significant on all the levels. And so the other parent in your life is also going through it. And so you're all going through it. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful to like younger generations with so much language 
And I think young carer and the recognition of that is one of those things I'm grateful for. I would never have been able to describe myself and my siblings in that way when I was growing up, but I recognize it now. And I know that we all have traits which are very familiar to people who've, who've been in that situation. So I think that there were things that related to my family life, which directly correlated to my need for the dancing. And actually, as I was um, writing it and working it out through the writing, I realized that the less my dad could move or had control over his body, the more I needed to dance and have control over mine. So I feel this absolute connection to um, disability, muscular weakness, and then the strength which you bring on the dance floor and what it feels like to that core control, that tightening of your body, the loosening of your limbs when you're moving and just how important that was to me, what a lifesaver it was really. Where was that movement happening? Um, probably this was like when I, you know, 16 year old me started going to acid house clubs, uh, like seriously, I'd kind of had a little bit of dabbling before with sort of suburban, with more suburban versions of it. Um, but specifically at a club called Rage, at a nightclub called Heaven underneath the arches at Charing Cross. I do want to talk about Rage at Heaven. And I do want to talk about some of the other acid house clubs you went to, but were you also going to youth clubs? Because I feel like those are a really significant part of the book that maybe audiences outside of the UK aren't as familiar with the influence of. Mm. I mean, there was a massive influence. I think one of the, just sorry, too many thoughts were happening at once. Um, I think one of the reasons why the UK has such strong dance floor culture and this generative um, way in which music cultures are constantly being involved, evolved and, and still are doing that with the Londonization of Amma Piano and Afro House, for example. You know, this stuff never dies. And it partly happens because of diaspora and communities of colour and the lineages of, say, sound system culture or more recently West African hall parties. But part of it in the mix is also youth clubs and the fact that there, it, there were so many youth clubs in the UK in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and all the way up until the 90s, that there's no way of being able to count how many there were because they were so ordinary. It's like there's no central register of how many corner shops there were. You know, they were very, very ordinary, very, very common. And most people would have interacted with a youth club at some shape or form. And many of them ran discos, many of them had dance floors. And they were places where if you were the person who might become a DJ, you would be the one that might play the records. So it was. It was youth run. Each youth club would have either its own style of music or different styles of music on different nights so that, you know, young people could bring the music they wanted and needed and dance to it with their with their friends. Um, and I think that absolutely operated as a kind of a foundation, a stair step and a, a kind of arena in which people could learn what it meant to dance to specialist music with your friends. And of course, some of them were just like pop discos as well. But you learn many things. Well, that you also connect people like Winston Hazel and the Forge Masters and Warp, um, you know, like a, a really significant inflection point in UK musical history, not just UK dance music culture, to youth clubs. And I was hoping that you could expand a bit about this connection between youth clubs and culture. Um, I think there's a there's a quote from the book where you refer to it as an almost entirely overlooked motor of UK dance culture. 
I could be I could be skewing that a bit. No, 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 that's right. And another another one of my like what I might call, if I may, uh, talk about my own work like this, banger lines. <laughs> there really needs to be a dance your way home calendar, a tear off a date. Whoa. Well, I have to say, Elijah, who does the yellow squares, was very kind enough to do an event with me where he contextualized my work and he made some yellow squares of my work. And one of the yellow squares he made was this one, which is youth clubs are not a weird subsector of charity. They're culture machines, which is is pretty much what you were referring to Um and so, you know, another one is like the dance floor is a technology of togetherness. And I definitely worked hard on those. You know, I've learned a lot from from like all the DJs I've seen and all the MCs I've listened to that you sometimes just need a line that is going to hit. Um, but with youth clubs, um, Winston Hazel, very, very influential man on Sheffield dance floors from many years ago until now. Um, he talked to me about the youth clubs he was part of. Part of that was about um, him being part of a hip-hop breakdance crew at that point called Smack 19. And the, the youth club was a place where they could practice and become really skillful and go on tours around that part of the UK um, and take breakdance and hip-hop culture to people in towns where it hadn't yet arrived. So they were, yeah, like conduits for the music. They were spreading the sound. and But it also acted as a sort of starter pack for their own nightclub situations because... In a lot of these youth clubs, you had treated rooms that were dark with mirror balls and with a little DJ setup that would be packed away and then could be brought out for the Friday night disco. So he um, he specifically talked about the way that when they first started going to clubs, it was like going to the youth club dances, but just in a different scenario. And actually, um, in the um, uh, Micah Salkin's book, about the queer roots of Chicago House. He quotes DJ Celeste, who describes the high school dances as being like a stair step. Um, and I think it's the same thing. You know, in Chicago, they had high school dances. In the UK, we had youth club discos. And I, I think they performed a similar role. And they're part of the reason why both those cities, a part of the reason, obviously not the whole one, that both of those cities have such deep and vibrant um, dance floor culture. It's worth mentioning uh, in the context of the Chicago youth dances that you're talking about that it was people like um, Frankie Knuckles or Ron Hardy playing in a high school gymnasium. And you, you say in the book that you have to imagine it like it's Serena Williams teaching your Friday afternoon PE. Um, and I just love that connection between Chicago house music as it existed in youth clubs in Chicago or at high schools and the eventual export of that music to the UK, where it might have been uh, bubbling up in a similar way from those youth clubs, you know, an intercultural connection where the two sides didn't even know it was happening until it had already reached a critical mass. But this is the way in which the dance floor is a portal and a, a, like a transmission tool, as well as being this technology of togetherness, because you can be in places that are very far apart in a very pre-internet world. And there's something about the action of moving together, um, which is so powerful that the um, reverberations of that will really travel and they travel in a very particular way. So um, I'm thinking now about, there's a, a bit where I describe um, a friend of mine, Graham Stiles, who ran something called Caves Parties in Chislehurst, suburban southeast London, around like 1990. And like we were all mad for Chicago House, you know, like absolutely mad for it. We loved it. We, loved, we bought all the music. We just felt connected to the recent histories of the music and to what was happening now with the music. 
And I knew that this was the case and I remembered it being like that. But then I watched a video that he'd made, you know, like, which is quite an unusual thing to do at that time. He'd taken a video camera into the, the caves parties. And at the very end of it, there's this exchange which absolutely proved that we did feel like that at the time where two people are talking. One of them says, I'm here at like pretending they're a reporter really like quite off it. I'm here reporting from Chiselhurst caves, caves parties on. And then he sort of loses his ability to continue. And the person from behind the camera says on the edges of Chicago, but you know, on the I mean, it's like edges he uses, maybe like um, on the outskirts of Chicago. I think that's what he says. And that's kind of how we saw ourselves, particularly from the suburban perspective. We were on the outskirts of London, but we were also on the outskirts of Chicago. And that's to do with the powerful nature of what happens when you dance out what you need to dance out to specialist music that might well also work for people somewhere else. So specialist music, and you you have very deftly sidestepped some of my attempts to get you to to share some of your your own personal history that I think please ask me again um, like, gives you a very unique and uh, long termist perspective on dance floors and how they've evolved. Um, for people who might not be familiar with um, you know your your work or your your own personal history, I think it's valuable to say that you were a very early contributor to the documentation of these uh, dance floors in the UK um, at the opening night of Rage at Heaven as an attendee at the final night of Shum where your mom helped you, your mom runs interference to help you sneak out of the house. And I think the, the book is really full of very sensitive and sensible uh, authoritative experience that permeates the book while also recognizing the limits of such. And I, I really am hoping that you can just take a couple of minutes and share a little bit about your early path into club culture as a dancer and a decoder via platforms like The Face or Jockey Slut or early early um, magazines and other initiatives like that. Oh my God, I absolutely love that, being called a dancer and decoder. <laughs> That's what, a, what an incredible framing of what I do because sometimes it's a bit hard to explain even to myself what I do. I've... I've begun to say, well, you know, really my job is synthesis. I'm a kind of synthesizer. I take input and then I synthesize it into a, a um, bringing together lots of different strands and trying to make it understandable to, to both to those who know. So like I'm acting like a mirror, a reflector, but I'm also trying to make it accessible to those who don't share the, the kind of the, the knowledge and fundamental beliefs that you are likely to have when you stamp them out on the dance floor. But yeah, dancer and decoder. Thank you for that. Um, if you're asking about my experience of documenting things, then I think it just comes from recognizing that I was part of a culture of contribution. So in the like the very earliest days of going out to acid house clubs uptown and also just wherever I could find them, um, I was very much receiving. I was in absorb mode. Um, was I making anything at that point? Well, I was contributing through my movement. I was definitely, you know, shy but enthusiastic dancer. Um, but I was also like logging information I was noticing. And I remember doing a little bit of like practicing of writing just in my bedroom, just practicing like what would it mean to just try and take some of this and put it into words. Um, I, I, 
I want to go on a little side stream here about the painted Denton Forester, but bring me back afterwards because it, this is a reasonable question that you're asking. Denzel Forrester is a painter who at Jashaka dances in the late 70s would take um, a, an A1 piece of paper and his charcoals and pastels and would sketch one sketch per tune. And he would dance on the paper through mark making. And that was his way of contributing. He was an artist. He wanted to, uh, to draw things that he felt and he wanted to make art about things he loved and believed in. But that was how he attended Shaka dances with paper and charcoal. And then he would take it back and make these big paintings. And I feel like he, in that environment, recognized what his skills were. And without being asked to or without being given permission, he found a way to contribute somehow and at the same time do what he needed. And I kind of, you know, he's an incredible artist, but I, I, I feel some kinship in terms of the way that we um, found our place in the dance. And for me, that was about noticing and making notes. And then eventually, a couple of years later, um, starting to write for, starting to write about it, starting to write about clubs. Because by that point, by the time I was 20, I had like four years experience of like proper, proper, proper dance floors which uh, gave me a good amount of authority. Um, to go back to your original question, um, my friends, John Burgess and Paul Benny, and my friend Joanne Wayne all started Jockey Slut magazine together. We'd all done a bit of a stint at the student publication. We were all studying at Manchester Poly, uh, which later became Manchester Metropolitan University. And we'd sort of used and abused the student publication for our own ends, um, you know, allowing it, using it as a way to interview people and write about clubs. I was a clubs editor when I wasn't working behind the bar at the student union. Um, and so when they started Jockey Slut, using, actually using and abusing the student resources in a, in a brilliant way, um, um, I just got involved. So I contributed to the very first edition of Jockey Slut. I have to say a name which at the time myself and uh, Joanne Wayne, the other women who worked on the publication, had no problem with because we knew it related to like DJ fanboys. So the name needs some explaining now, but it didn't need any explaining at the time. Although I did not tell my grandmother that's what it was called. <laughs> <laughs> so I contributed to the first issue of Jockey Slut by interviewing a guy called Elton who ran the door at a club called Most Excellent. Um, he was like locally famous, big, big character. And so I interviewed him about, yeah, I just did the back page Q&A, uh, which was with him. And I think one of the questions I asked him was something like, which shows you how these questions never go away. Is club culture dead? Mm. <laughs> or what do you say? What do you say to people who say club culture is dead? Which really made me laugh when I look back at it because, you know, it's just a perennial, isn't it? Well, I think that ties into my next question, which was, how were people speaking about dance floors and dancers at the time of that inaugural issue of Jockey Slut? Um, you know, how how has the writing that you've done or that other people have done changed over the years and its understanding of dancers and their central role in this experience, if it even has changed at all from your perspective? I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about um, how you've recognized conversations about dancing change over the years um, with regards to its role in club culture and music culture more widely. That's very interesting because one of the reasons, and I think I'm speaking accurately for John and Paul here, one of the reasons we started the publication was because the music we loved and the dance floors we inhabited 
was not accurately reflected elsewhere. By this point, the kind of mainstream publications, which are often very rock-centric, um, were talking about uh, dance floor culture, were talking about house of techno or whatever, interviewing DJs. But they were often just doing it either in a really dry way or in a, a way that was just wrong. We didn't feel that the mainstream, and this is actually to do with probably the white press, um, I don't think this was probably true in publications like Blues and Soul, uh, which which took a, a sort of um, a more organic approach to the lineage. Um, they were connected to what came before and what came afterwards, and so there was just a, a, an easier way of communicating. And of course, brilliant writers like Jacqueline Springer, who mostly wrote about hip-hop, but was definitely, anyway, that's perhaps too much of a sideline, but also Jacqueline Springer is an incredible thinker and writer of of so much UK music and culture. But Enemy, Melody Maker, um, the rock press weren't doing it very in a way that we recognised. So we did it because we were on the dance floor. We were buying records every week. Um, we knew the DJs. We were we wanted to talk to them. We wanted to represent them properly. And we were writing from the middle of the dance floor absolutely all of us were on the dance floor. We weren't like watching from the side. We were in it. And that um, was very specifically the position that we took. We're writing about this from people who've been in it for like some time. And we wanted to bring that across. So we were anomalous in that way. Hmm. I think I want to follow up a little bit on that because I am curious if you think the role of the dancer has become undervalued in the way that people talk about these communities as the years have gone on. When I think about my own awareness of certain music cultures, uh, something like Northern Soul, where there are legendary dancers involved, or uh, in London at a club like Crackers, where people would have been dancing quite noticeably, or um, going to the US and looking at things like uh, the original breakers or even the footwork dancers, they're coming out of Chicago. I feel like a focus on dancers um, has become quite rare in the way that people use it as a tool for interpreting the music um, as an expression of geographic specificity. And I'm curious if you feel similarly, disagree, or how your research unveiled these evolutions. Isn't that to do with writers or documenters who are not in and off the dance floor? Isn't it to do with that? I feel like if you're going, I mean, there is a slight counter argument which says, you know, anxiety is a real thing. Social anxiety is a real thing. There are people who love the music, but don't feel able to join in on the dance floor in a way they might want to. And, I, you know, I do hear that as an argument. But I just think you miss so much of the nuance, of the joy, of the comedy, of the detail, if you're not, um, if you're not documenting from within, and of, and 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 anything else that helps me explain what I'm trying to say. <laughs> There's something that you lose when when it is abstract to you and not lived, um, and I think. So I think perhaps the lack of focus on the dancers is to do with people who are not dancers writing about or making content about or documenting dance floor culture. And one of the chapters in the book focuses on a specific club that seems like 
it represents a real locus of the possibilities of these expressions. And I'm talking about plastic people. Um, you, you have a quote in the book, another one for the tearaway calendar, uh, <laughs> where you say, something special happens when you listen and move at the same time in reference to plastic people. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about your experience being in the dance floor at that club and how some of those experiences continued to inform and expand your sense of the importance of dancing as you started to write this memoir and social history and, and interrogate the experiences more. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that quote originally comes from Shelley Tete, uh, incredible musician. Um, you may be familiar with her work. If you're not, I would suggest familiarizing. Um, and so, yeah, I think that comes from Shirley Tete, but, but that thought absolutely um, was another one of those guide thoughts, which I recognized as true when I was thinking about how to write about plastic people. And so I very much just tried to do a bit of uh, time travel to remember what it felt like to be there front left by the pillar really receiving the music. I wanted to also be, I enjoyed to be close to the um, the part of the wall that acted like an extra sort of bass amplifier because it actually had an alcove in it and they had treated it. So if you sat in this particular, if you were in this particular part of the room, you were getting some additional vibrational information from the side. Um, and so when I think about plastic people, I think about the darkness. I think about a specialist music. I think about heaviness. I think about the repetition of like queuing up and going in and going downstairs and going through the curtain and being on the dance floor, you know, week after week after week after week after week after week. And, and what happens when you repeat yourself in this way and the repetition of the action, not just the dancing, but like the weekly going adds something else to the, rep the repetition that you're going to hear in the music. And so these are not things that you can just dip into and dip out of. You get something from that. If you can only dip in, then it's better to than not. But the real juice, the the depths are achieved by being part of something on a regular basis and going back. I also think it's important to recognize that plastic people is, of course, closed. So many of the spaces where people have experienced this sense of solidarity and expression on dance floors are increasingly under threat. So I was hoping that you could speak a little bit about how Dance Your Way Home might be interpreted as a work of conscious activism in favor of the continued existence and importance of these dance floors. Uh, you also refer to them as a space of molecular rearrangement. And I, I love that because I think I want to keep having my molecules rearranged on a dance floor. And you don't, again, you don't say clubs, it's dance floors. And I think that's very important to draw that distinction. Yeah. On, on that note, the dance floor, it is a nightclub. And often we put, we just, we put that framing in it. It's just only exists in the club. But actually the dance floor is your kitchen. The dance floor is a wedding disco where you get to make bonds with new members of family. It's a work leaving do. It's a festival. It's, it's in the olden days version. It's the village green. It's the crossroads. And so the dance floor is much, much bigger than the club. Obviously, I've been on a lot of club dance floors as well. So um, uh, so that is part of the reason why I've kind of gone in there so much. I want to use something that me and Elijah used when we did our talk together at SOAS. 
uh, when he contextualized me in the, using the yellow squares, which is an optimism drop. Mm. He said to me, you know what, people are feeling really like, it's very easy to get disheartened. So let's not do that when we do this talk. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that. Let's do an optimism drop. And we will bring things that we feel optimistic about. And we will ask people in the audience for their own optimism drops. What is it that, that you in the room are feeling good about? So that was really excellent because I think optimism, it's back to Tony Morrison, isn't it? And the idea of unreasonable optimism. You know, what do we have? We don't have the possibility of keeping clubs open when there's no money and no framework for councils to deal with noise complaints apart from shutting things down um, or when property developers just want to take it over. We can't do any of those things, but we can be unreasonably optimistic and really support the things are working. So I'm thinking about gut level in Sheffield. I went into the talk up there a couple of days ago. And they did an incredible thing of finding a space and making a space, uh, got kicked out of there, but then they found somewhere else. And now they've got this incredible space and they're like, you know, we will be doing parties, but this is actually a cozy space for us to meet and talk and hang out and do other things as well. So I think gut level in Sheffield make me feel incredibly optimistic. Also where I live in the borough of Lewisham, kind of it's, um, it's, it's like a particular pocket of Lewisham where suddenly out of nowhere there are four nightclubs within a 10 minute walking distance you know there's um and and what i'm noticing about them when i walk past if i walk past late at night is that they are predominantly for young people working class people communities of color the kind of people often who are uh, in situations where on mass are not welcomed still in the kind of clubs that we had previously and maybe the conditions are not right for the kind of nightclubs we had five years ago, but I definitely see people making the space they need. And I feel really good about that. And I think that ties it back to the quote from Theo that we discussed at the part of this, that, you know, the, the dance floor is not just a space of escapism, but it's an opportunity for solidarity. And in whatever way that people can continue to pursue that solidarity, they can and they should, and there are positive outcomes to come from it. Absolutely. And it also reminds me of a, a kind of banger that I was only able to articulate once I'd finished the book, um, which is that we know the dance floor is political because of the way the state responds. It might not feel political. It's really It's been really hard to try and work out why is this stuff political? But we know that the state responds uh, in a squashing way, which shows us that they think it's political. You know, the new right wing government in Italy, well, the first act was a you know, so-called anti-rave law. Um, we see the police treating venues differently than they would say, um, or say Brixton Academy, terrible tragedy happened there um, around crush injuries and two women lost their lives. Really terrible. But crushing injuries have happened in other scenarios, like, for example, football stadia. And the response from the state is not, well, you can't have a football stadia anymore here. Uh, the response is, well, let's have a report and we're going to change the seating. But there's um, a trigger response that happens to do with nightclubs and music spaces, which is categorically different to other spaces. So we know something else is happening. The dance floor is political because, and we know this because of the way the state responds. And that's why it's important to keep dancing. Yes. Amongst many, many other reasons. Absolutely. Emma, that's it for us for today. Thank you so much for your time uh, and to share more about your story and the story of Dance Your Way Home. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this RA Exchange with Emma Warren. Her new book, Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Floor, is now available via Faber Publishers and wherever books are sold. 
Special thanks to Aaron Goncher for moderating this conversation. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. If you have ideas for guests you would like to hear on the podcast or stories you would like to share, please send us an email at exchange at ra.co. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.